words next time we come to worship. Jenny, you have served us so well already. What we're doing now is Jenny's going to come back, and she has now got another um, talk to talk to us about. I'm not going to spoil what it, what it is. This is a subject that we asked her specifically to come and talk about. So I'm going to pray for her again, and uh, there will be time after she's spoken to actually do some more solid reflection. And you should all have been given a sheet when you came in with all the books, and on the back of that sheet, um, there are going, we're going to have a bit of a response time looking. Um, at that section of the sheet. So if you didn't get one, they're on the table by the door. And if you put your hand up, Jen will give you a sheet if you didn't get one. I think I gave everybody a sheet. Okay, I'm going to pray and then Jenny's going to come back. Thank you, Lord. You are speaking to us. Thank you that you are lavishing your love on us. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you and rejoice in you. Um, we can lean on you. And Lord, we just pray for fresh energy and fresh grace to Jenny as she brings us this message. Amen. Thank you again. So uh, this message is on spiritual mothering, which, um, yeah, uh, Vicky and Grace asked me to bring. I, it's a, one of it's a worked up version of a blog post I wrote on the Think Theology blog. So that's how they knew I had something to say on it. Um, and you can go back and look there for the shorter version later if you want to. <laughs> so in the last session, we uh, talked a little bit about um, one of the major metaphors uh, the Bible uses to describe Christians, which is the body of Christ. And this time we're looking at the other, the family of God. So we've been adopted into sonship with God as our father. We're co-heirs with Christ, and just like in the body, we all have our parts to play, each of which is vital for the proper functioning of the whole. So in churches like yours and mine, I go to a church called Grace Church London, uh, which meets in Waterloo, uh, is part of Advance Network, which you guys are also part of. Um, uh, our churches are sometimes called complementarian churches, um, that means we firmly believe that men and women are created equal, but different. We look different, we're wired differently, we notice different things, we respond differently to different stimuli. But our differences should not conflict with one another, but complement one another. Not all men are the same, obviously, not all women are the same, but on the whole, we're more likely to have certain strengths, weaknesses, and preferences, and men are more likely to have different ones. But it's vital that we grasp, neither is better or worse than the other. Some gifts and characteristics uh, are valued more highly by our society. They're more highly celebrated. They're more richly rewarded. And that can fool us into thinking that they are more worthy. But that's not the biblical pattern. The Bible is very clear that both male and female are made in the image of God with features that reflect different parts of his character, and that both are equally valued and equally necessary to reveal to the world the fullness of who he is. He made us different, and the primary reason for those differences from day one was that we would be able to go forth and multiply. That's the reason for the biological differences, but it's also the reason for the emotional and the um, uh, psychological uh, differences. He intended us to work together to create and to nurture children, physical and spiritual, and bring them to maturity. I'm aware that this might well be difficult for some of you to hear. Uh, you may have longed to have biological children, but God has, for whatever reason, withheld that blessing from you. 
the message of the Bible is that the physical, biological reality we live in is just a shadow of the truth. The biological family is a picture or a symbol of what the family is designed to be. And that's why he says in Isaiah 54, sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Why? Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Our spiritual family is our real family. We have to understand that if we as the church are going to be fully functional and fruitful. In his letters to the Galatians, Paul quotes that Isaiah passage in the context of trying to explain to the Galatians that belonging to the family of God is no longer about being physically descended from Abraham, as it always was in the Old Testament, or even about obedience to the law given to Moses. Those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior have been adopted into the family of God, and that is now our primary family. The spiritual reality is more real than the mere biological one. So God thinks that women who are physically barren cannot just survive but thrive when we grasp our true identity and the real reality of the world. He says, you better build a bigger house even because your spiritual children are going to overflow the neat little three-bed semi that you've been mentally placing yourself in. This is true for all of us, whether we've given birth or not. God says, spiritual mothers, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. This is the kind of promise and destiny that we as women have. The world wants to tell us that if we don't have the title of leader, then we're demeaned, diminished, belittled, even worthless. And I think uh, it thinks that we need to have a title and a position and preferably a salary in order to be effective. But the Bible tells us something very different. It shows us the power women have for good or evil in the life of the church. We're meant to work in partnership with the fathers in the church to bring about new life, to nurture that which is younger or weaker, and to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. A bride washed and ready to meet her bridegroom. So how do we do that? What does it look like to be a spiritual mother within the church? And before we get there, I want to just talk briefly to those of you who don't think this session is relevant to you. You're mentally switching off. I'm going to switch back on again. <laughs> Maybe you're one of the younger women in the church, physically or spiritually, and you're writing this off as a session for old people. I've definitely been there. I've heard spiritual mothering in the past and basically thought that's anyone like 20 years older than me. It's like I couldn't possibly be a mother. Maybe you don't feel particularly motherly. You haven't got the skill set that our culture tends to associate with motherhood or motherliness. You don't like housework, you're not that good with kids, you don't like cooking, you have no idea how to make a World Book Day costume out of a cereal packet and three pipe cleaners in one night's notice. But I've got good news and bad news. The good news is none of those things is necessary. The bad news is that means you don't get to have a nap this session. <laughs> if you've been in church for any length of time, there are messages, you'll have found that there are messages that aren't directly relevant to you at that moment. Some might become relevant later, others might never be. So we have to learn how to handle those. First of all, it will be incredibly rare that a message will contain nothing for you at all. Any biblical message helps to build our understanding of the character, the nature, and the mission of God. And I hope today's will too. But secondly, the messages are being taught to you as a body, as a family. 
So say the sermon is about facing fear, and you're not particularly a fearful person. But what if the person sitting next to you is, or someone in your life group is, or a colleague at work is? Even if they've been in the church and they've heard the message, when the fear hits, they might not be mentally or emotionally able to remember all the things that they've learned. They need you to come alongside them, remind them of the truths that you've been taught, and help them to lean on Jesus and use the weapons he's given them. If you haven't paid attention because it wasn't for you, then you won't be able to play your part in the body when your brothers and sisters need you. Also, if you're not yet in a position to be a spiritual mother, you might need others to perform that role for you. So who are you going to look to? Who will you go to for wise advice? Whose example will you follow as you seek to grow in your faith and to walk faithfully along the paths God has laid before you? Listen to these characteristics as we go through them and think about who in the church is exhibiting them. They're the people you want to get to know. You want to watch them, to come alongside them, to learn from them, because they've grown or are growing into the sort of people that you want to become. And there may also be some of you who are feeling your age, maybe thinking you haven't quite got the strength to keep nurturing these immature children anymore, <laughs> or who are seeing that as season approaching with terrifying rapidity. Our culture doesn't value age, wisdom, or experience, and it can be a really scary thing to see that approaching and to fear the loss of our usefulness, our role, our significance. Again, the Christian worldview turns that kind of thinking on its head. The Bible greatly values older people and gives enormous honor to them. But think about how many of the patriarchs weren't used until they were in their 80s, didn't start their ministry until they were 80 or 100 years old. I'm struck by just what a gift older women in particular are to the church, both the local church and the church worldwide. As you read missionary stories and biographies, so many of them start with an old lady faithfully praying in her room. Others continue through times of discouragement or need because an old lady sent an encouraging letter or a generous gift just at the right time. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven and discover that the whole history of world missions has been powered by little old ladies. (laughs) (laughs) My point is that however old or young you are or feel, don't count yourself out. God has a role for each of us. And if I know him, we'll find it's a role we're ideally suited to, a role that deeply satisfies and fully fulfills us, the role we've been waiting for. So let's look at some of the characteristics of mothers and see how they relate to the church. Uh, As Grace said, you've each got a piece of paper that's got two boxes on the back. Um, So as you listen, make a note of things that you recognize about yourself in one box. Maybe things that you've never thought were spiritual mothering before, but God says, yeah, you do that. That's that's one of your gifts. And in the other box, uh, make a note of anything that I mentioned that you think oh, I'd really like to grow in that. I'd like to ask God to give me that. And as Grace said, we'll have some time at the end to just pray into those things. So first of all, uh, mothers gestate, fairly obviously. It's been my observation that often women will carry an idea or a burden for a long time before it's time for it to come to birth. It could be something as simple as wanting your church to do something new to serve the poor in the community. It might be something more clearly prophetic, like knowing a particular need will arise in time and we need to start preparing for it. Maybe you take it to your leaders and find that they don't really see the need. They don't agree with you, but you know deep in your core that that need is real. So you carry it around with you. Every now and then you feel it kick and you pray into it more fervently. And then one day the time is right and the leaders decide to act. 
They might not even remember it was you that brought the idea to them. They might think it was their own revelation from God. <laughs> I've seen it happen so many times. I'm convinced that that's God's perfectly designed way of getting the project or plan prayed for and formed deep in someone's heart until its time has come. It could be tiresome. I've never been pregnant, but I have got plenty of friends who have. And they tell me that while in many ways it's a joyful time, a wonderful miracle, an amazing time of excitement and anticipation, it's also hot and heavy and uncomfortable and miserable. It makes you sick and tired and it's painful. And carrying this spiritual burdens can be the same. There's a lady in New Frontiers called Ginny Burgin, one of the really prophetic women in New Frontiers, and she's been pregnant with a vision of revival across this nation for over 20 years. It's been a heavy burden to carry. She's been discouraged along the way. She longs to see it come to birth. But aside from a few confirmations from God and assurances from him, she's just had to carry this for decades. I don't know if men carry burdens in quite the same way. There are obviously prophetic men uh, and men who are very gifted at planning and foreseeing future needs. But I think there's a particular way in which women carry these things as part of our design in God. So is that something you've experienced? Have you carried burdens like this? Mothers gestate and spiritual mothers gestate spiritual insights. Secondly, mothers bring to birth. Peggy and Christine Smith were 82 and 84 years old. One was blind, the other crippled with arthritis. They were housebound and unable to make it to church. Yet they brought to birth one of the greatest revivals in history. They lived in a tiny village in the Isle of Lewis off the northwest coast of Scotland. In 1949, they started gestating something. They were burdened with a lack of faith in their island, particularly among the young people. And God gave them the promise of Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They started praying that, letting it sit with them, asking God to keep his promise. They prayed persistently. I've looked up lots of different accounts trying to get a, a sense of the timeline, and they, it's all fairly fuzzy, it all varies. Uh, it might have just been a few weeks, as some say as long as 18 months, but they prayed into this. Some nights they knelt in prayer at 10 p.m. and didn't get up to go to bed until 3 or 4 in the morning. That was the gestation period. Then at last the time came when they called their pastor, Reverend James Mackay, and told him that they'd seen revival was coming and that he should get the men of the church to pray. So every Tuesday and Friday night for weeks, the men prayed in one of the local barns and these two sisters prayed in their home. During this time, God again gave them a vision of the church filled with people and a, a stranger in the pulpit. They didn't know who he was, but they called Reverend Mackay again and told him he needed to invite a visiting preacher who would lead the islands into revival. The minister, uh, again, there's a long story short, the minister found a man willing to come. His name was Duncan Campbell. And he's often credited with bringing revival to the Hebrides. But he hated it when people said that because he said, no, no, it was already there when he arrived. It had been brought to birth by prayer and in particular by the prayers of these two elderly, housebound, physically restricted women. Sometimes the things we carry will be brought to birth by others and we need to be okay with that. It can be painful to carry a burden for years and see someone else get the praise and glory for bringing it to birth. But we have to know that we're in this together it's a family thing. Your victory is also your victory, and your victory is also my victory. 
the goal is that the thing comes to birth. It's a sign of our maturity as spiritual mothers if we're able to rejoice in the victory and in God getting the glory without needing the accolades for ourselves. Just we were learning from Paul this morning. And of course, it's not just the elderly who bring things to birth. Often the youngest Christians are the best evangelists because they're so excited about this newfound faith that they can't stop telling people and bringing them to Christ. If you were writing yourself off as a spiritual mother because you're new to Christianity, this could actually be an incredibly fruitful time for you with spiritual babies popping out right, left, and center. So mothers bring to birth. Then they feed and clothe. This can be at a practical level, like Dorcas, who uh, we learn in Acts 9, made clothes as gifts for the poor. Or in our context, perhaps it's like those who always offer to host or cook for, spirit, for fellowship meals. But again, you don't have to be able to cook to be a spiritual mother. <laughs> There's a spiritual aspect of giving ourselves, especially to baby Christians, to nurture them, to feed them from the word, and perhaps to cover them in prayer, to clothe them in righteousness, to pray the protection of the armor of God over them until they're able to pray it for themselves. There's a group of us in church who there's a, a lady who's going through a particularly tough season at the moment, and we're just we're praying these covering prayers of God's protection over her, over her mind, over her spirit, and just recovering her like that and, and holding her close, keeping her safe and warm while she's unable to do it for herself. Are you someone who loves to bring food along to shared meals? Do you always remember the birthdays in your life group? Are you forever lending good books to people who might benefit from them? Or praying quietly with people after church? Or gently encouraging those who are struggling? We're all commanded to do these things, but the ones who do it first and sort of most front-footedly are probably spiritual mothers. And alongside that, they nurture. Mothers are constantly seeking to encourage growth and development in their children. And children cannot grow and develop without that input. Mothers, good mothers at least, are constantly affirming their children's attempts to develop new skills. In a church context, this might look like inviting people along with you when you go on outreach or when you're uh, on the coffee team or leading a Bible study. It's to do with spotting gifting, calling it out and building it up. If you're looking at people that are gifted in any of those areas, in any area, and you want to grow in that, you can ask them to teach you. We often feel hesitant to ask because it feels like we're being a burden. But you're not asking them to add any tasks or time into their schedule just to allow you to walk alongside them in what they're already doing. It's a guy called Daniel Goodman who leads City Church in Cambridge, and he's recently started doing this with another of the prophetic women in New Frontiers, Angela Kem. When she goes to speak or do ministry at other churches or conferences, if he's free, he asks if he can go along with her. He learns by doing it alongside her. It's a win both ways because she gets help with the driving, which can be a really tiring part of the ministry, and he gets to learn on the ground how to listen to God and speak into people's lives. On the way home, he asks her good questions, and she gives him feedback on how things have gone. He's growing, and she gets to pass her gifting on to a new generation. Again, there's nothing inherently female about this one. It's normal discipleship, and men can and should be doing it too. But it is an important part of the life of the family. So who are you bringing alongside you and passing your wisdom and experience on to? Don't shy away from that. It doesn't honor God when we pretend we haven't got any wisdom or experience. It's not godly humility. It's fear and it's ingratitude and it's disobedience. God is a generous giver. He's lavished each of us with incredible gifts 
and to deny them or refuse to share them with others is to stunt the growth of the church. Don't have that false humility. Mothers want their kids to grow. They rejoice when their kids go beyond them. That's where the humility comes in. Not in pretending that we don't have any gifts, but in passing our gifts on and rejoicing when others grow beyond us. There are some leaders who want to be the one. They want to be the man or woman at the top to get the glory and the acclaim. And then there are mothers. They'll be the person at the top for a season if they must, but their goal is to draw up those who are below them and propel them higher. It's not even that they care more about the work being done than about getting their glory. It's they care more about those around them reaching their potential than they do about the work getting done. Because it probably will be done worse to start with. Anytime you're teaching a child anything, they're going to do it worse than you for the first 5,000 times. <laughs> it's a process. But then they're going to get better and better until they can do it competently. And with some things, they'll, they'll grasp it. They'll take off and fly with a new level of creativity and skill that goes beyond what you're able to do. A leader is really threatened by that. A mother is thrilled. Uh, next, mothers see everything. We all know that mothers have eyes in the backs of their heads. They know when you're up to something from the opposite side of the house. They know that the time to really worry is when it all goes quiet. They're observant, not because they've got some magical gift imparted to them with the gas and air in the labor ward, but because their love for their children means they pay attention, they know them, they understand them. Are you someone who notices the needs in the church, who spots when someone's unusually quiet? Or you can tell when someone's walk is wavering? Do you see potential in people who have maybe been overlooked, see they need to be encouraged to step up into new responsibility? Think about the wedding at Cana. John 2 tells us, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. The wine had run out. The master of the banquet hadn't noticed. Even Jesus, God himself, apparently hadn't noticed. Mary had, and she pointed it out to the person who could solve the problem. What did Jesus mean when he said his time had not yet come? Did Mary push him into doing a miracle that he didn't intend to? If so, why now? How did she know he could help and that he would help if he hadn't for the past 30 years? This is complete speculation, but it looks to me very much as though Mary saw the need and also saw that Jesus' time had come, even if he himself wasn't convinced. I love how she totally ignored his objection, too. You might have had times when you've seen how great someone is at making people feel welcomed or at expressing things to God in prayer. Maybe you've gone to them and said, you should really join the welcome team, or why don't you pray out in life group this week? And they've just brushed it off and shied away. A spiritual mother might then just casually encourage them, um, introduce them to the welcome team leader and mention what a fantastic job they do of welcoming people all the time. Or they might spring it on them to close in prayer at the life group the next week. We have to be careful that's not just manipulating people to do what we want. That's one thing that we as women can be particularly skilled at, I think. Um, and it's not a positive character trait. So none of these points are about circumventing the authority structures that are in place around us. Or forcing others to do what they're not ready for or what God's not given to them. And it's all about lovingly creating opportunities and spaces for people to grow as the Holy Spirit prompts and inspires us.
Sometimes the quiet word of a mother can change everything. And sometimes they don't even have to speak. Because mothers set the atmosphere. My church leader, Andrew Haslam, and his wife have just had their third child. And I guessed she was pregnant long before they told the church, because she just wasn't her usual self in church. She was a bit short, a bit less chatty, less cheerful than usual. And when the news was announced, I mentioned that to Andrew. And he said it affected their whole household, because she was the person who set the mood and the atmosphere in the household. And when she was you know, really struggling with morning sickness, it's hard to be cheerful and positive influence. My mum's not happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> Spiritual mothers do the same. They can strongly influence the mood of quite a large gathering simply by their presence. There's a woman in our church whose wholehearted worship can just bring a new energy to the prayer meetings. There are others who you really want at any party because they lift the mood and the level of fun. Some women carry a sense of security around with them. There's been a few times in my life when I've had a strong sense of God that I've been brought into that church or that organization for such a time as this, just to uh, sit there and allow, to act as ballast. The church has been going through a time of transition. It's been my role to just sit there and allow my sense of confidence in God and faith in the leaders to just permeate out into the atmosphere. I don't necessarily have to say anything, but somehow me being unruffled gives others the opportunity and the, the courage to not be uh, ruffled as well, to, to, uh, to see that it's safe, to feel secure. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily be able to identify it, but uh, there have been you know, a couple of people have noticed and, and mentioned it to me just enough that I know I'm not just delusional about it. Um, and I've seen it in others too. There are, there are people who, just by being there, they add a sense of security and safety. And of course, people carry, who carry influence can also use it negatively. There are bad mothers as well as good ones, and they produce offspring after their own character. Jacob may have been a deceiver from birth, but Rebecca nurtured him in it, fed his rivalry with his brother, and actively taught him how to deceive Isaac. Herodias coached her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. Women can be champion grumblers and can spread unrest and dissension by everything from body language to gossip. So what's your attitude like? What's it communicate to those who are watching you? Who are you influencing? And is it a positive or a negative influence? If you've got leadership responsibility for any groups of people, think about who might be the mothers in that group for good or ill. If you have to lead them through change, it could be hugely beneficial to speak to those mothers privately first. And the good mothers so they can be mentally and emotionally prepared. And the disruptive ones so that you can answer their questions and concerns and let them feel heard and valued before taking it to the group. Uh, next one is mothers teach. They teach their children what it means to live well in this family and this world. Part of this is done through modeling. Children mimic what their mothers do. And the same is true in church. Good spiritual mothers turn up in good time every week prioritize life group and prayer meetings, get involved in serving teams, and fully engage when they're there. They might sit towards the front on a Sunday, or they might always sit in a different place because they're looking out for the visitor or the person sitting on their own and going to sit alongside them. They're reliable and trustworthy, and they reinforce the church's values through their lives and example. The teaching is sometimes, of course, also more overt. Naomi taught Ruth about the customs of Israel. She coached her in how the culture worked and how to flourish in it. Priscilla, alongside her husband, also taught Apollos, 
unambiguous theological training right there in their living room. They weren't appointed by anyone to do it. They didn't make a big thing about it. They didn't set up a discipleship program. They just saw a need and quietly got on and met it. So has God given you a teaching gift? Are you pursuing it? Teaching in church doesn't only take place on a Sunday morning. It doesn't only take place from the front like this. What opportunities are there for you to share what God has been building in you with others? I haven't got time to unpack the next three fully, but I think they're just worth mentioning briefly. First, they're interruptible. Their kids' needs are more important than the tasks they need to complete. How open are you to having your agenda disrupted when someone in the church is in need? Second, they'll do anything for their kids. Do you love the people that God has placed in your sphere of influence the way a mother would? Third, they make sacrifices. They willingly give up what they need for the sake of their kids. Who are you willing to do that for? Perhaps all those three could be summarized under this point. Motherhood is a call to death. This is an extract from an article I read while I was preparing this talk. It's about physical mothering, but I think it captures the essence of what spiritual mothering is about too. From the moment of conception, your entire body is consumed so another human being can live. Sleepless nights, nursing, and round-the-clock care consume those early months and years. Later, death comes in the form of emotional death. Your children may not be sucking the life out of you physically, but the more you know them, the more you love them, and the more they can rip your heart out with one bad decision or a lifetime of bad decisions. Motherhood is a call to death. You may find fulfillment in it, but it won't come in the ways the world talks about fulfillment. Fulfillment in motherhood is found in following the way of the cross and laying down your life so another may live. That's at its heart is what spiritual mothering is about. Laying down your life so that others in your church or your sphere of influence might live. You may be a gifted evangelist who needs to die to your fear of man and your desire to be popular in order to take the risks needed in starting the conversations that will bring people to new birth. Or perhaps you're a life group leader or a women's leader or a prayer warrior. You need to be willing to have your heart broken time and time again um, as those God has given you to love and care for, make bad choices, or walk away from the faith or suffer through illness or tragedy. All of us need to die to ourselves in order to fulfill the calling God has placed on our lives. That's what Christian discipleship is all about anyway. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Spiritual mothering is a high calling with a high cost, but it's really no greater cost than what Jesus calls all of us to anyway. So how are you mothering? As we've seen, mothers can use their power and influence for good or ill, or they can abdicate their position entirely often because of past hurts where they felt overlooked or undervalued. They can be deeply gifted but unaware of it, or not aware it's a gift that the church needs. Women are particularly vulnerable to imposter syndrome, thinking our gifts aren't really that impressive. Well, if I can do it, surely everyone can. I'm nothing special. I shouldn't be arrogant enough to think I've got anything to offer. Or they might not feel that they have permission to operate in those gifts. I think that's where I was for a long time. I'd done bits and pieces on a practical level when it was part of my job, but in church generally it took me a long time to go from seeing myself as the young single who needed to be mothered to realizing, actually, I'm older and more spiritually mature than many of the people around me. I need to step up and inhabit that role that God's calling me to. I think uh, 
my singleness was part of that. Um, I, I used to, to think that my single life wasn't my real life, that, I was, that that would start once I was married, that somehow marriage would confer that sense of authority and permission on me. That's just not true. God gives us all gifts for building up and encouraging the church, whoever we are, whatever our role or position or marital status. I think we can often, I call it mothering up. You can mother people who are older and more mature than you. There's, there are times when we come alongside and just offer a quiet word of correction and of help. My parents lead a small church in Northampton, and uh, it's entirely people who are 20 or more years older than them. And they've had lots of people that have come in with different emotional needs. And they have just really gently, my mum particularly, mothered them into confidence. There's one lady in particular who um, was orphaned as a child. And I'm not sure if she grew up in a children's home or just in a not particularly loving adoptive home, but she certainly feels that she's never had a mother in her life. And she was helping us prepare for the... Um, at the village festival, we always serve sandwiches and cakes and things. She was helping us prepare for that one year and just kind of confessed to me that she doesn't know what to do. She's never been taught to do this. How, how do I make a range of sandwiches for an unknown number of people coming in? And so I was able to just kind of help her and encourage her and teach her how to do it. And then the next year go, yeah, you do know how to do this. You did it last year. Don't you know? You enjoyed it. Remember, this this was fun. You can do this. And again, helped and coached her along to do that. And I see my parents doing that for different ones in the church all along. Even though they're older, there are needs that they're able to build and grow in them and help them with. But I think I've wasted a lot of the past decade or so overlooking my gifting, waiting for permission to use it. I can think of a number of women and some men who I should have befriended and I could perhaps have helped. And I'm sure there are many more that I didn't even notice. I've had to repent of that um, even while preparing this talk because having recognized it, it became a burden of guilt that I've had to lay down at the foot of the cross and ask God's forgiveness for. So I want to give you the opportunity now to do the same if you need to and to give you the chance to identify before God what areas he's gifted you in what areas he's calling you to step up into. Earlier I quoted the passage from Isaiah, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. Spiritual mothering isn't another ministry to find time for. There's no rotor for it. It's not building a new tent. It's what you're already doing, but more so and more intentionally so. It's a shift in power and effectiveness when you understand the purpose of what God's naturally wired you for. It's a shift in desire. It changes from the burden of another thing to add to your to-do list to a joyful outpouring of what you were doing anyway, fueled by love for your sisters, brothers, sons and daughters in the family of God. I've definitely felt as I stepped up for it that God has, has given me a love for the people in my church that I've just never had before, that I always thought I had to serve them and it was all a, a real burden. But as I've chosen to step into that, he's given me the love that I need and the energy I need and the uh, words from him that I need to be able to help them uh, in their times of need. So as we come to a close, have a look at what you've written on each section of your card, if you've, on your bit of paper, if you've been doing that all along, uh, or your notes. What have you been doing naturally that you never thought of as spiritual mothering? What do you think you're gifted in, but you've been holding back on? 
What do you need to say sorry for neglecting? And a useful way to pray about it is using what's been called a teaspoon of prayer, TSP. Thank you, sorry, please. Thank God for his gifts. Thank, you for the things he, thank him for the things he's gifted you in, the ways he's using you already. Say sorry for those areas that you've neglected. And then ask him for his help to grow in your spiritual mothering, particularly in those areas where you think, yeah, I'd love to do that. I, can, I feel a burden from him to be able to work in that area. So I'll give you uh, a couple of minutes to do that privately, and then uh, I think Grace will give the nod, and we'll have some more worship and prayer and time to respond to that. Let me just pray for us as we go into that time. Father God, thank you for the gifts you've given us, for the honor you give to each and every member of your family. We're sorry for the times when we failed to recognize your gifts or have despised them, longing for different gifts or greater recognition by others. Please show each of us how much you love us and value us, want to use us to advance your kingdom and build up your body. Give each of us opportunities in the coming days and weeks to practice our gifts and to grow into a good, wise, godly mothers. Amen.